0: good morning everybody Uh, we're continuing our series on the minor prophets and we're today going to be looking into amos before we do that let me lead you in a prayer let's pray together thanks heavenly father we can gather together thank you for your word and i pray that you would guide us as we look at this very exciting book of amos open our eyes and help us to see truth that will impact our lives speak to us lord we pray through your word and we pray in jesus name amen amos is a very exciting book Uh, it's a very uh, direct book and before we and i want to encourage you to read it before we jump into it i want to talk about a little about the background amos tells us in uh, verse one uh, that both his occupation but he also tells us during the kings during king uzziah of judah but particularly jeroboam who is the king of israel the north by this time Israel, obviously, the whole 12 tribes have had a civil war and the kingdom has been divided into two. That happened after Solomon, 150 years, 200 years before Amos is on the scenes. And so 10 tribes have gone to the north. Their capital city is now Samaria. And Judah is down the south with two tribes and their capital is Jerusalem. Every king in the north all the 10 tribes, every king they ever had, if you read through the book of Kings, was bad, spiritually speaking. They may have been prosperous um, in terms of finances and they may have been successful militarily, but spiritually, they were all astray. They were all opposed to the true and living God. They set up idols and altars. And while they used the name of God, they were really worshiping other idols. And Jeroboam, particularly, is a king who was very successful politically, militarily. During his reign, and even his eyes, both kingdoms expanded. And it was a time of great peace. A generation had risen up that hadn't experienced war. That was about to change. And with that stability, there came great prosperity. And the rich got richer, and often at the expense of the poor. People were very happy and satisfied. Religion was booming. Lots of things were happening. And it's into that context that God sends Amos. And Amos, we are told in uh, verse 1, what he did. He was a shepherd and he came from Tekoa. Tekoa is down south in the uh, country, the tribes of Judah. Um, it is six miles or 10 kilometers south of Bethlehem. So he's way down south. And God comes to him. He's a shepherd, a farmer. He raises sheep. And apparently he doesn't do it too well, too successfully, because he takes on a second job, as he tells us in chapter 7, that he's also a fig tree harvester, sycamore figs. And that's seasonal work. And so that was to supplement his income from being a shepherd. He's not a prophet. He's not a son of a prophet. He's not theologically trained. He's a farmer. He's a country boy. And God taps him on the shoulder and places a very heavy burden on his heart. And in fact, that's what his name means. Amos means burden or burden bearer. Uh, And God says to him, I want you to travel north. I want you to speak my words to the 10 tribes of Israel and to call them back into a relationship with me. And so Amos sets off, he heads up past Bethlehem and he continues up past um, Jerusalem and then north, keep going, and he leaves the boundary, crosses the boundary from Judah into Israel, continues to head north until he comes to a place called Bethel. Um, The capital is Samaria, but Bethel is where the altar is and the temple is, which is funded by the king and greatly supported by businesses and um, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, Amos is a country boy who is a bit like Crocodile Dundee being in New York City, if you've seen the movie. He's a frog out of water. He's very different. He's got a different accent. He's not highly educated, but he's very bright. He speaks in very simple terms, but very picturesque terms. He's like John Bunyan, who can paint words, paint pictures with words, and the pictures have deep meaning that people could easily understand. He was a clear, direct, some people would say blunt communicator, whom God raised up for a period of time, just for a short time. And he headed north, delivered the message, and then he would have headed south again. And that's where he would have composed um, and written down this book. Uh, It's a collection in of his sermons, it's a collection of his visions, it's a collection of the statements and phrases, the pictures that he used in that time he was up north preaching. It's a fascinating book and I encourage you to read it, to sit down and just read the whole book in one sitting and pick up on some of the themes and I want to do that with you this morning and help you in that process, so that as you read through the book of Amos, you'll come to a better, clearer understanding of what God is saying to us. The book falls roughly into three sort of sections Um, and we'll read through these very quickly Um, chapters 1 to 2 is like the introduction and in the process of doing that he begins his ministry in the north by articulating God's judgment on the nations around and as you see through the pattern eventually he was going to land on Israel and get their attention Um, chapters 3 to 6 is a collection of about three of his sermons And there are certain words and phrases that he uses, which I'll talk about so that as you read through the book, you'll be able to pick up on those themes. And then the last three chapters, seven to nine, are a collection of about five of his visions um, and that articulate very clearly that God is going to destroy the north. He is going to remove them. But that's not how the book ends. So let's see when we get there of how God operates and works in our world. Chapters 1 and 2, one of the patterns to notice is uh, Nehemi- uh, Nehemiah. Amos is a preacher, and as a preacher, he uses certain skills. One of them is um, repetition, and there are certain key phrases that he will say over and over and over. In chapters 1 and 2, he likes to use the expression for three sins of whatever country or place, and for four, I'm going to bring judgment. I will not relent. He says that in verse three, he says it again down in verse six, and he keeps going. Chapter two, verse one, that's Moab. Chapter two, verse four, and eventually chapter two, verse six. There's a pattern to what he does here. He turns up on the, the uh, steps of the Bethel temple, I could imagine, and he starts speaking in his Judean accent, in his country language, as my dad would say you could probably still smell the gum leaves on him he's from the country he's a simple down-to-earth farmer speaking to pretty sophisticated affluent people who give him a hearing initially he begins by targeting israel's neighbors to the north damascus and then down to the south with gaza then he goes back up to tyre and those three are just the neighbours of Israel and unrelated to them. Then he jumps across and he goes down to Edom and then up to Ammon and then down to Moab. And these three are actually cousins. They're related to Israel through uh, Jacob and Lot, <clears throat> if you remember those Bible stories. And then from Moab, he comes across the Jordan Rift and focuses on Judah. And the people of Israel up north must have been excited to hear these criticisms that Amos was bringing in the name of God against these sinful neighbours, against even their related but neighbouring countries, and even against their sister country of Judah, they must have been cheering him on and being very excited. Just like us, people... It's always easier to notice bad things in other people and never in ourselves. It's a bit like a guy who... After the pastor had preached one day, went to him and simply said, you know, everything you said applies to somebody I know. We can make that mistake that we listen to God's word. We're not listening for ourselves. I hope she's listening. She needs to hear this. What we need to do is we need to hear and listen to God's word for ourselves. And so that's when Nehemi- uh, <laughs> that's when Amos targets israel he's gone for the neighbors he's gone for the related countries he's gone to the sister one of judah they would have been cheering that on but now he knocks on their door now he points the finger in their chest and he says in chapter 2 and verse 6 this is what the lord says for three sins of israel and for four i will not relent and then through the rest of the chapter chapter 2 he will articulate some of the particular sins that Israel in particular is guilty of and that God's had enough of and that's why he's sending a prophet to warn them um, that God is going to be sending judgment. Some of the other patterns you'll notice just before we go on. Uh, He uses repetition, as I said, and some of the things he repeats are not just that phrase of for three sins and for four, but he'll also repeat things like Uh, yet you did not return to me. When we get to chapter 4, he he repeats that six times. I did this, but you didn't return to me. I did that, but you didn't return to me. Six times he goes over and over. Between chapters 3 and 6, it's the phrases of thus says the Lord, or hear what the Lord says, or these are the words of the Lord God Almighty. That that phrase comes up again and again. Chapters 5 and 6, he talks about three woes. In chapter... Five, he uses the word seek. Seek me, seek the Lord, seek good. Or as we get to the end of the book, eight and nine, he uses the word never. And I hope that we'll get to that. But he talks about, I will never forget your deeds, God says. I'll remember every single one and hold you accountable. You will never again rise up. I'll wipe you out for good. And... And there's a return, a change in God's judgment. And there is this word of hope that Israel will never again be removed from the land. The word never is one of his patterns of repeating things as a preacher, of keeping people's attention. Well, if you've got your Bibles, um, either follow me there or these will appear on the screen. So you'll read parts of the verses, but I encourage you to have your Bibles open. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, hear the word, people of Israel, the word of the Lord, that he has spoken against you, against the whole family that I brought up out of Egypt, the Exodus. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, and therefore I will punish you for all of your sins. I chose you. We agreed. And it's because I chose you that therefore I am now going to have to punish you you know better and you haven't been behaving accordingly. Chapter uh, three, verse three, do two people walk together unless they've agreed to do so? Yeah, of course not. They've prearranged it and they walk together. Well, you guys, we met and we entered into a covenant and you agreed that you would walk with me, God is saying. And you said, we will obey. We will obey, but you haven't. And now judgment is coming. Then God goes on to raise a whole lot of rhetorical questions in chapter 3 verses 4 to 6 about lions and birds and traps and trumpets and disasters coming and it's really a picture of cause and effect. One thing causes another thing and God's pointing out to the people that their sin is causing the judgment. And then please note there are a couple of verses in Amos to particularly note. They're worth memorizing or highlighting They can train great truths. Chapter 3, verse 7 is one of them. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. God acts in our world, and this verse is telling us a universal truth. God never does something in terms of judgment or punishment without warning, without indicating what he is doing. Because God's heart motivation is that he wants to draw people to himself. And he most reluctantly acts to judge and to bring harm. But as a righteous holy God, he must and he will. But he never does so without first revealing it to his prophets who will communicate this warning to the people. God always warns before judgment. Chapter 3, verse 8, harking back a little bit to Joel. The lion has roared, who will not fear The sovereign Lord has spoken who can but prophesy God has roared and I feel compelled. Amos is saying I have to deliver the message that God has placed on my heart. And as we come to chapter eight too, it's as Amos was compelled to teach and prophesy God's word. So we as his people should be compelled to hear and to listen and to obey God's word. God goes on, uh, listing their sins and so on through chapter 3. Let's go down to chapter 4, verse 1. Amos gets a little bit direct, as I said. He can be quite blunt. Uh, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan of Mount Samaria. The cows of Bashan are you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. He calls the women of Samaria, the affluent, the aristocracy. The he's a little bit insulting, but as I said, he's direct. It's all to do with their idols in verses 4 and 5, that they worship in Bethel and Gilgal, and it's where they have their pagan temples and, and so on, and they practice these religious rituals. And God has noted... But notice in the rest of chapter four, God is going to give a list of the things that he has done to try and win them back. Chapter four, verse six, I gave you empty stomachs in every city, lack of bread in every town. Result, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Or in verse seven, I withheld rain from you in the harvest, sent rain on one place and not on another. Result, but you have not returned to me. Verse nine, many times I struck your vineyards and your gardens with blight and mildew, sent the locusts against the trees. Result, but you have not returned to me. God has been trying to get their attention. Verse 10, I sent plagues even, coronaviruses and worse. Just like I did in Egypt, God says. Young men died by the sword. Result, but you still haven't returned to me. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like some sort of cataclysmic destruction, maybe the earthquake or something. Um, Results, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. There's that refrain going through of God's heart almost breaking. Even back in chapter two and verses 11 and 12, it talks about God did something else. I raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. What did you guys do? Well, you made the Nazarites drink wine, which disqualified them, and you commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Stop preaching God's word. We don't want to hear it. Well, they have demonstrated a behavior which is bent on doing their own thing, of not listening to what would please and honor God. So God says to them in verse 12 of chapter 4, Therefore, this is what I'm going to do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. You may have heard that phrase in other contexts, but it's Amos who delivered it the first time to his own people, to the people of God. Israel, prepare to meet your God. Well, they had lots of gods up and down the, the land, lots of false gods, shapes of golden calves and, Other sorts of idols. Which God? Well, Amos goes on to tell him this God, verse 13. Here is my business card. The one who forms the mountains and creates the winds, who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness, treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord Almighty is his name. That's the one you need to prepare to meet. God Himself, the Creator. He'll come back and do a similar thing in chapter 5 and verse 8, where he talks about God as the one who made the Pleiades and Orion, who acts in creation and sends the rain. And God is the creator who acts through his creation. And he'll do it again in chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. When we come to chapter 5, Amos, country boy, writes a country song. It's a sad song. It's a lament, chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word, Israel. This lament I take up concerning you. And he talks about all different sorts of issues. In chapter 5, verse 3, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will only have a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will have ten left. They're going to be decimated. 90% of the people are going to be killed. And then you jump over to chapter 6. God's going to reference this again. He'll talk about even the 10 people in verse 9. If 10 people are left in one house, they too will die. The destruction is going to be wide and whole and devastating. Israel's going to be wiped out. Um, God goes on to talk about sorts of things they did in verse 10. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court. They detest the one who tells the truth. The whole orientation of the people was away from God and away from truth and away from justice and towards their own self-indulgence, towards their own wanting to be rich and pampered and complacent and comfortable. We could almost be accused of the same thing, I guess, in our society. Chapter 5, verse 12, at the end of it, God says... I know how many are your offences and how great your sin. I know them all and I'm not forgetting any of them. The end of the chapter, chapter 5, verse 25, he asked this strange question. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? The answer is yes, they did. When When Israel came out of Egypt and for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness, did they offer sacrifices during that time? Yep. Do you remember what happened during that time? Well, God still judged them. Even though they were offering sacrifices, every man over the age of 20 perished in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. God is reminding them that even though you're religious and doing ceremonies, my judgments were still being worked out. And as I did it then, I will do it again. The Lord seems to be saying, chapter 5, verse 27, Therefore I'm going to send you into exile, beyond Damascus, way up north. That's what the Lord, whose name is God Almighty, that's what he says. We come to chapter 6, verse 7, he also talks about, Therefore you're going to go into exile. I'm going to deliver your city up and everything in it, in verse 8. Uh, Verse 9 is that reference to if there are 10 people left in a house, they too will die. And as the undertaker comes and takes the body away, so someone will say, is anyone else in here? And people will say, shh, we must not mention the name of the Lord. It's like we're hiding. He doesn't know we're here. Because God is going to find them and remove them. Um chapter 6, verse 14. God is going to do all of this through a nation. God works in our world through people. And God works in nations through nations. And sure enough, the Lord is going to stir up a nation. It's going to be Assyria. Cruel and conquering people who will come from the north and who will totally decimate the 10 northern tribes. We come to chapter 7. There's a what. There are five visions, and the first two, there's something really important for us to note. Um, <clears throat> this is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He showed me a swarm of locusts, and I saw the vision, and he says, what do you see? And I cried out, Sovereign Lord, how can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented. He showed him a vision, this is what I'm going to do, and Amos prayed, and God changed the plan. That happens again, chapter 7, verses 4 to 6. He sees a God showed him a vision of a fire. And Amos prays and said, we'll be totally destroyed. And God relents. Before we move on, take note. Prayer has an impact on the purposes and plans of God. God changed his mind. I'm going to do this. And because Amos prayed, God relented. We'll see the same thing when we come to the book of Jonah. God is a most reluctant judge. He doesn't want to hurt. He wants to reconcile and save and bring people to himself. But he will. He must. Because he's holy and he's just. But it's his unusual work, as one of the prophets call it. I just wanted to encourage you take note of that. That God listens to us. Prayer changes Situations. It doesn't change God's character, but it can change the timing of God's plan. He still achieves his purposes, but prayer can make a difference in people's lives. We need to hurry on. Verses 10 to 17, uh, there is a, I'll let you read that, but there's this guy Amaziah who basically has a hissy fit with Amos and says, go home, go preach to your own sheep down south, reports him to the king. And Amos gives a prophecy against him about his own personal both family and his own personal destruction. Uh, Have a read of that. In chapter eight, we have the final vision about a basket of ripe fruit. God is saying Israel is like a basket of ripe fruit, shows this vision. It's like the fruit is so ripe, it's almost as ripe into rottenness. As soon as you touch it, it penetrates the skin. And God says, I can't delay it anymore. I will spare their lives no longer, he says in verse 2. In verse 7, I will never, he's one of the nevers, I will never forget Israel. I will um, never forget any of the things you have done. Says it again in 8 verse 14. You will fall never to rise again. Chapter 9 We're getting to the end of the book and we're getting to this increase in this sense of impending judgment. And in chapter 9, verse 10, no one will escape. Uh, Verse 1, sorry, no one will escape. In verse 4, I'm going to keep my eye on you for harm and not for good. And verse 8, the crescendo, surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful nation. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. And then there's a turn in verse 8. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob. Notice the name change. That happened a few chapters back, but Amos is now calling them Jacob. Israel is no longer Israel. Israel has reverted to their pre-conversion state. They're like Jacob, the deceiver, the manipulator, Jacob. And yet even so, God, because of the covenant, is going to be gracious to them. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob. You can read down through um, to the end of chapter 9. but God says basically in verse 10 that I'm going to destroy all the sinners out of the land and I'm going to somehow preserve and protect a remnant and eventually I will bring them back. There is this wonderful promise from verse 11 to 15 of God restoring and rebuilding and replanting, reestablishing them. And he finishes with another never in verse 15. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord God. Nehemiah is a book who brings, uh, Amos is a guy who brings judgment on the people of the northern 10 tribes. But there's an element of hope in the future. They're going to go through a very tough time, but God will work his purposes out. Um, even though Israel, because in the midst of their affluence and comfort, made them very reluctant to be listening to God's truth and God's warnings. We need to be aware of that in our own lives. Well, let me summarize this because time is going. Amos teaches us that the Lord is the creator. He's the creator of all and his ethical standards apply to all nations and all people. There are no exemptions. Everyone will be called to an account. Amos teaches us that God is watching, that we treat people well. It's expected of all people to do that. And it in fact is evidence that we are in a right relationship with him. Amos certainly teaches us that God cares for people and he wants them to return to him. And God has been acting through all sorts of circumstances and situations in order to bring people back to him. Amos emphasises God's word as Amos was compelled to preach it. So we should be compelled to listen to it in church, in our lives, in our families. Amos certainly reminds us that Israel was supposed to be the people of God, a royal, um, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Someone being a a witness to the nations, but they were compromised and they became like the nations. need to examine ourselves. And finally, the book of Amos teaches us that God can use anybody. Amos was a nobody, an unknown. Look up the name Evan Roberts on Wikipedia or Google and read that man's life story, a nobody, whom God used powerfully. And I think he would finish by saying, Amos, I am a nobody sent by somebody to tell anybody and everybody that somebody died for them so anybody and everybody can believe and be forgiven so nobody is left out and nobody left behind let's pray thank you heavenly father for your love for our world jew and gentile thank you that you have a plan for both and thank you that you sent jesus your son the messiah to open salvation to all. We know he will come again. And when he does, he'll take us, his believers, to be with him, that he'll judge the nations and that he'll recreate the universe. Our hope is in him. We take our lead from him. And he's the object of our songs and he is the one that we look to and whom we want to honour and glorify. Thank you, Lord, also for your word. Thank you that You've given it to us, it's a wonderful gift. Help us not to take it for granted, but to read it, to listen to it, and to obey it. Thank you, Lord, that you work in this world uh, through different circumstances and situations, always with a view to bringing people into a relationship with yourself and to bless them for their good. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for these blessings. And we thank you and pray In the name of your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. Amen.